you suffer from numbness, tingling, burning, or pain in your feet and legs? It could be caused by something as simple and common as a B1 deficiency. This is Dr. Ronald Hoppen with a solution for low B1, Zobria by Realm Labs. Zobria is a safe, effective, and clinically proven nutritional supplement containing a high-potency bioactive form of vitamin B1, which has been shown to reverse symptoms caused by low B1 with no side effects. Low B1 causes your nerve cells to stop functioning properly, resulting in numbness, tingling, burning, and pain in the feet and legs. It may also contribute to forgetfulness, loss of mental focus, fatigue, and loss of appetite. Restoring proper B1 levels has been shown to improve the functioning of these nerve cells. You can get Zobria risk-free by going to Z-O-B-R-I-A.com. That's Zobria.com and get 20% off with coupon code Hoffman at checkout. This offer is only available to Intelligent Medicine listeners. That's Zobria.com. Vitamin B1 perfected. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. And, you know, one of the big problems with the current medical system is that uh, it's going to sink under its own weight. The expenses of uh, high-tech medicine are exorbitant. And uh, it's also the price of drugs. Uh, Drug prices are soaring. Uh, And so a logical solution would be to unleash the competitive marketplace. Lots of drug companies that develop drugs... Uh, have monopolies on products that you know may cost uh, you know a few dollars to make, and yet their markup is uh, hundreds and thousands of percent. Uh, they say it's necessary to protect their intellectual property and to keep R and D going, uh, but it would seem like a logical way of dealing with that is to allow cheap generics. Generics are all the rage, uh, but we're going to talk to an investigative reporter who has blown the lid off the generic drug industry. The book is entitled Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom. Our guest is its author, Catherine Eban. Uh, Catherine uh, is uh, an investigative reporter. She's written many articles for publications like uh, The uh, Times, uh, Vanity Fair, The Nation, uh, and she's educated at Brown University. And she was a Rhodes Scholar uh, over at uh, Oxford University, which uh, she has some very distinguished company. A few people attain that honor. Uh, She uh, joins us today to talk about her book, Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Welcome to Intelligent Medicine, uh, Catherine. It's a pleasure having you on board. Thank you. Great to be speaking with you now. Well, you know, first of all, uh, you know, give us a little background on this because, uh, you know, we tend to think of uh, drugs as being, you know, uh, you get a patent for you know, seven years or nine years or however many years you granted a patent, uh, and that the vast majority of drugs are uh, drugs that are under patent, and then and they go off patent. But, uh, you know, I personally didn't realize how, how big the scope of the problem is that so many drugs are generic. Yeah, so 90% of our drug supply is generic, which surprises a lot of people. And what's interesting about that is the majority of those drugs are manufactured overseas. Uh, 40% of our generics alone come from India. So we are really reliant 
on foreign countries for our low-cost medicine. And that is raises so many questions that really propelled me into the investigation uh, that I did for this book. Well, you're, it, it's a variant of, of what's called medical tourism. You know, prices are so high in the United States that people go to Mexico or they go, they sometimes go to India where uh, you can have uh, very uh, fancy dental procedures uh, for a couple of thousand dollars that might cost you, uh, you know, uh, middle five digits in the United States. Uh, so, you know, clearly, you know, medical training is pretty sophisticated in some of these countries. Uh, they do have industrial standards. Uh, we've had some issues with uh, China these days. In fact, we're in a big fight with China about adulterated products. But I didn't realize that uh, there are issues with the uh, drug supply that we get from India. Yeah. So, um, you know, really over the last 20 years, our drug supply has um, not even so gradually become globalized. Um, and so by about 2005, the FDA had more plants that they had to inspect overseas than they did in the U.S. But any plant that wants to import, uh, export their products into our market has to follow what are called good manufacturing practices. So that's an elaborate set of regulations which stipulate how uh, plants have to make safe, effective drugs. Um, so the FDA goes and does inspections overseas, um, and, and they contend, the FDA contends that, you know, any, any drug that is being sold in our drug supply um, has been vetted by them, and it's safe and it's equivalent. And really, that was one of the questions that I went to investigate. Uh, when I started working on this book. Well, this has got to be a, a very expensive process because uh, these factories are very uh, far-flung. And, yeah, okay, it's, uh, you know, it, you can send somebody from uh, Washington, D.C. to Toledo, Ohio, or to uh, Fresno, California, to inspect a drug plant, uh, you know, domestic air travel being what it is and accommodations. Uh, but to uh, station uh, FDA officials in places like China uh, and India and other remote parts of the world, uh, is the FDA overextended? Oh, the FDA is absolutely overextended. So what happened was, um, your listeners might recall the uh, the problem of heparin adulteration mm -hmm. in 2008, where you had contaminated heparin coming into our market from China. Yeah, it was, so, there was, it was very gory because it literally they, they showed that uh, it was being prepared sort of in these slop buckets, uh, in uh, you know very unsanitary conditions in a factory in China. It just was really gross. What was the upshot oh, yeah. of that? Did people and, get sick? And, well, 80, over 81 Americans died from adulterated heparin. Mm -hmm. And it was in the wake of that. Yeah, that's right. And it was in the wake of that that the FDA said, you know, Congress did a big investigation, and the upshot was the FDA opened foreign offices. They opened an office in China, an office in, in two offices in India, uh, offices around the globe, with the recognition that you know what, if our drug supply is global, the FDA's presence has to be global too, because you can't really hope to regulate products in a market where you don't have any regular presence. So you know, since then, um, the FDA has people stationed overseas and in the U.S., um, but. 
But when, once I started investigating, well, what is really happening in these foreign manufacturing plants where our low-cost generic drugs are being made? Right? What is going on behind the curtain, essentially? And that is what my book delves into. Um, so, you know, I found a couple of very striking things. For starters, the FDA reviews data submitted by these manufacturing plants. And the data has to prove that the drugs are bioequivalent, that they were used on patients, and that the um, it was absorbed into the blood at a similar uh, rate. Um, so there's a whole lot of things that the drug is stable that these companies have to prove. So, so, so it's not data. enough just to take the chemical formula of a popular drug and just cook it up in a vat somewhere in uh, uh, in New Delhi. Uh, it, you actually have to do rigorous testing to see if what comes out of the, their vat is actually bioequivalent, that it delivers the same potency, that it's free of impurities. There's a, there's a whole lot that goes into that, right? Well, that's exactly right. And so manufacturing plants have to submit data from all those tests. So the FDA reviews the data. The other thing they do is what are called pre-approval inspections. So they're going overseas to make sure that these plants are not just, you know, making it in a bathtub, right, but they're making it in a legitimate manufacturing plant that's following all these rules. Mm -hmm. However, overseas, they are announcing those inspections in advance. Hmm. sometimes months in advance. Hmm. And so my sources are saying those inspections are essentially staged. You know, you mm -hmm. give um, you give these manufacturing plants with a pool of, of low-cost labor two months advance notice that the FDA is coming and they will clean up and essentially stage these inspections. Mm -hmm. In fact, you, you state in the book that they, they actually sometimes set up Potemkin Village laboratories uh, or manufacturing facilities that, that have nothing to do with the real uh, backroom manufacturing facilities. Uh, you know, they're clean, they, they have exacting standards, but it's easy. It, you, that can be set up within a matter of a couple of weeks once you get notification that there's going to be an inspection, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and in fact, in China, some of the manufacturing plants pool resources and invest in one plant and they, the different manufacturing companies pretend that they're mm. all manufacturing at the same place. Mm -hmm. And because the FDA can't even read the street signs, <laughs> they have no idea where they're going. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all kinds of subterfuge that the book exposes. Uh, but really one of the biggest issues that I look at is the, the systematic fabrication of manufacturing data. Mm -hmm. So that these companies are representing that their drugs are meeting standards, that they're meeting specifications when, in fact, they are not. And the book follows um, a whistleblower named Dinesh Thakur, who was an employee of a company called Rambaxi. That was India's biggest drug company. Uh, and it's about how he discovers that almost all of the company's manufacturing data that they're submitting to regulators around the world is fake. Hmm. About what he does with that discovery, and, and that's also with a high degree of uh, of uh, corruption and governmental uh, governmental uh, collusion. In fact, because uh, many of the regulators in those countries are aware that the quality isn't up to snuff, but either they get paid off, or they get some skin in the game, 
uh, they look the other way. So they can't be relied upon to be the watch guards over quality. That's right. So in some of these markets, and it certainly is the case in India, you know, the U.S. and European regulators who go and inspect those plants are sort of the lone policemen um, because the plants are not worried about Indian regulators who are rarely sanctioning these plants or finding problems. Hmm. In fact, they're not looking for problems. So, you know, there's not the sort of elaborate tort system and, you know, the legal system where, uh, you know, a lot of companies are held to higher accountability in the U.S. And, you know, uh, criticize it as you might. You know, we have a very powerful uh, system of justice in this country. Uh, We're lawyered up and if problems occur, uh, there's a lot of liability. Right. And that is really, you know, one of the issues that the book is exploring is that we've entrusted the manufacture of life-saving medicine to countries where we don't really have jurisdiction. We don't have an attorney's general in India. We can't serve a search warrant. We can barely, you know, we can't necessarily Mm -hmm. extradite somebody without the cooperation of that government. So, you know, it's it's a perfect storm where we have limited power, limited oversight, and dependence on these foreign countries for the manufacture of our drugs. Why did we um, cede so much uh, responsibility to offshore countries for, for our drug supply? It would seem that, you know, uh, I'm from New York City. Uh, you grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, we can look across uh, the Hudson River and New Jersey used to be the pharmaceutical state. And, they, you know, all the pharmaceutical manufacturers uh, used to dot the New Jersey uh, countryside. Uh, we made our drugs here. Uh, how did that change? So this is something that happened gradually. It started really with antibiotics, uh, which require um, a lot of fermentation, and they also create a lot of waste product. And as environmental regulations tightened in the 70s and 80s, um, a lot of that manufacturing moved overseas to China, where it was very, very cheap to make antibiotic mm. salts. Uh, but then slowly, uh, one of the pivotal points which the book describes is the AIDS crisis, um, where, where um, NGOs and governments came in to try to get lower-cost AIDS drugs for patients in Africa. Right, and this is a big political thing because, you know, to charge exorbitant amounts for life-saving drugs, it doesn't. It seems uncompassionate and greedy. A- absolutely, and so the big positive change that occurred was this idea that the U.S. government and other governments could pay Indian manufacturers um, taxpayer dollars for them to manufacture very cheap generic AIDS drugs, and we could send those to Africa. And it was really a model of, um, you know, amazing international collaboration. Mm-hmm. But as part of that, but th- that jump-started their generic uh, industry inadvertently. A- absolutely. Well, what happened was that as part of that international agreement, the U.S. government said, "But hey, if we're going to use all these taxpayer dollars to do this, we want to know that the drugs are of good quality." So. We're going to we're going to require that they be FDA approved, and then there came this thought: Well, wait a second. If we're sending all these cheap drugs drugs to Africa and they're good enough to be approved by our own FDA, why don't we? Yeah, our kids? our citizenry is going to demand them as well. I mean, it doesn't make sense for someone in uh, 
uh, you know, Greenwich Village to pay uh, $20,000 a year for their HIV medications when someone in right. uh, the Congo uh, is right. uh, getting it for $80 a year. Exactly. And so that's really how the generic drug boom got set off, and that is what transformed our drug supply, you know, up to the point where now 90% of our drugs are generic and the majority are coming from overseas. But, you know, that really leaves this open question of how is the FDA actually regulating those drugs? Mm-hmm. And are they able to do it effectively when they they struggle to regulate, you know, manufacturing plants that are within driving distance of their headquarters? I'll tell you where another pressure comes in. And, you know, and I, as a prescriber of medications, uh, often I get uh, a form letter from an insurance company uh, asking me if it's permissible uh, to prescribe a generic. They prompt me. They, they encourage me to prescribe generics. They say, well, you prescribe the brand name. We would like to switch it to a generic. Is that okay, doctor? Alternatively, I'll get letters where I prescribe a non-generic. I want a brand name because the patient is doing well on a medication and I don't want to take any chances. And some patients complain when they go on generics. They say they're less effective. Um, and then I get a letter of denial saying, I'm sorry, we don't cover uh, the brand medication uh, here it is. You got it. You got, we will only pay for the generic. There's pressure from the insurance companies and I, Medicare as well. Absolutely. I mean, consumers are being steadily forced onto the generic as a way to cut costs. But the question is, are the generics actually as effective as the brand? You know, consumers haven't really thought about this question because they don't have a lot of choice and because the FDA has assured everybody that the drugs are interchangeable. You know, mm-hmm. The brand is interchangeable with the generic, and generics are interchangeable with one another. But my they, book they re- really... They rely really on faulty focuses. data, though, because exactly. uh, you're, you're, you actually point out in the book that bioequivalence uh, really should be very rigorously tested under experimental conditions. But what they often do is they say, well, here's the purity... You know, they, they sent us documentation showing that their purity is 99.9%. It's the active mm-hmm. chemical, blah, blah, blah. The documentation looks pristine, but it's not where the rubber meets the road, like when the patient puts the pill in their mouth. Right. I mean, one of the extraordinary um, stories that the book follows in detail is this company, Rambaxi. One of the things that they were doing is literally running their tests off of the brand name drugs. So their Whoa. data looked okay. perfect. Yeah. Uh, but they were testing the brand name drugs and representing the data from those tests mm-hmm. as tests of their own generics. It's a little like the Volkswagen scandal with the diesel uh, emissions, you know. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> well, it really is. It is li- this is like the VW scandal writ large. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are problems. This is also sort of a national security issue, uh, because now, of course, we're in a big, uh, uh, tiff with China about, um, you know, not just, um, the tariffs they impose on our goods, but also, you know, the, uh, stealing intellectual property, uh, and, uh, copying our stuff. And a lot of the counterfeit stuff that finds its way into the U.S., uh, comes out of the Chinese market, presumably, uh, that's uh, not restricted to China. It may also be part and parcel of um, India's contribution. Uh, but for us to be so dependent on drugs from outside the U.S., that, that's not a, yeah. that's kind of a hangout position from a national security standpoint. If we get into a real uh, trade war, 
or shooting and actually the pentagon just raised that issue um in testimony before the u.s china commission so uh, you know the fact that we are so dependent for life-saving drugs or for really almost any drugs on china Mm -hmm. and and you know now we're feuding with china and what if they decided to cut off our antibiotics? I mean, they would literally bring the country to its knees mm -hmm. overnight. Yeah. So that that's really, uh, you know, we talk about dependency in terms of uh, steel, okay? You know, I get it, war yeah. material. Uh, but a very, very fundamental level, uh, level they have um, uh, they have us uh, with a choke point because of our over-dependency. Um, so uh, now FDA is aware of these problems, but in your book, you, you say that the latest developments, they sort of capitulated to this idea of uh, prearranged scheduling of inspections. They, they right. haven't wised up. Well, so the book follows um, a young FDA investigator named Peter Baker, and he began to go into some of these plants, and instead of just you know, running these credulous inspections where the plants would print out their data and he would take it and look at it. He started looking in the computer systems themselves at these plants. And it was by doing that that he was able to expose this hidden, fraudulent world where even though the plants are supposed to make all of their data and all of their testing results transparently available to regulators, he figured out that a number of the plants overseas were running hidden laboratory operations mm -hmm. where offline they would pre-test the drugs, get a forecast of what the results would be, and on that basis they would then, when they did the official test, they would alter the parameters of mm. the testing in order to get the desired results. Mm. And he basically uncovered this whole world of pre-testing. You know, the, the pre-announced inspections that the FDA was doing allowed these plants, once they knew they were coming, they would, they had secret testing equipment they would send out of the plant. They would sort of shut down the operation of these hidden laboratories. They would bring in data fabrication teams in advance of the FDA coming in to alter the data. Mm, wow. Um, and the FDA knows that this is not the way to conduct inspections. So um, they, they wouldn't stand for it here. I mean, I, I mean, oh, absolutely it's, not. I mean, I'm involved yeah. with the supplement industry. I mean, if the supplement, if they, if they said to the supplement industry on such and such a date, we're going to come and inspect your facility. Um, you know, they would just, do you know everybody would be shining their shoes and you know uh, wearing yeah. their lab coats and they would you know scrub the facility and make it really spiffy. Uh, people have told me that in effect they they do here they do what are might be termed razzias you know raids you know it's like knock knock it's right. the uh, you know it's the FDA uh, here right. we are open your books uh, we're going to walk around right. you know like like right. yeah like a military operation a SWAT team. Right, which is absolutely the way to conduct an inspection. And that's pretty, I think, pretty clear to everybody. So, uh, all right. So this is a good point at which to pause because our listeners okay. know we divide our podcast into two parts. Um, it's a problem. 90% uh, of the drug supply in the United States 
over 40% of generics are made in India. And nearly 80% of the active ingredients in all drugs, whether brand name or generic, that's an interesting point too, um, as well as virtually all antibiotics taken in the United States are made overseas. And there are some serious quality concerns. The book is entitled Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom by Catherine Eban. She's our guest today. And um, we're going to discuss the scope of the problem and what we can do about it. We're hooked on foreign drugs. It's a bad situation. Can we extricate ourselves from that? I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.